listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Today's guest is Mandy Smith. Mandy is a fellow Aussie, but also the lead pastor of University Christian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. University Christian is an amazing church uh, with an urban emphasis, as well as having a significant outreach to students at the University of Cincinnati. Mandy is also the author of multiple books, including her leadership book called The Vulnerable Pastor. I've read it. It's fantastic. It's a great book for any number of people to figure out how to continue to serve and lead in a public and open way. I began just right off the bat by asking Mandy how she deals with feelings of inadequacy. Oh boy, let's just start with something simple. <laughs> so how do I deal with feelings of inadequacy? I have a friend who described it in a really wonderful and helpful way that he said, um, when we have moments of just sensing we're in it over our head, we can understand that as an um, invitation into anxiety and it kind of devolves into anxiety or it's also an opportunity for reverence and worship and so it's a really good and a normal human experience to sense that that something is bigger than us or something is beyond our capacity and that actually can be a moment to say oh my god I need you right now (laughs) you know or it can be an opportunity to be like (laughs) this is you know to spiral downwards into despair and anxiety. And so in a way that should be the moment of, you know, in a way the the spiraling downwards is, is an atheist choice. You know, it's bad theology really, because we would claim to say that God is here for every way that we are inadequate. And this is an opportunity to just turn to him one more time. But our culture is so deeply embedded in us and tells us if you feel inadequate, it's your job to work harder, fix it, get another degree, buy a product, somehow put on a facade. And so um, I don't always uh, recognize that response in myself, but the more that I do, the better I am and the more those opportunities, more those uh, moments that are opportunities to reach out to the Lord. Um, And I I think that goes back to the core of our sin, really. That's the core of what happened in the garden. So it's nothing small. So what was it like when you first started lead pastoring the first two or three years What kind of inadequacy rose to the surface in you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's the normal human inadequacy that we all feel of being in a situation that's new to us. And then there's this kind of vague cloud of just not feeling like you've ever seen anybody like you do it before. And so, and also this less vague cloud of voices over your shoulder who are saying, you probably shouldn't be doing this in every time that you make a mistake or that you fail or you feel inadequate, it's a sign that you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, and by voices, you're not saying imaginary. <laughs> I mean real people. Yeah, not imaginary voices in your Right. Head. Some of them I know, some of them just find me on social media. All right, so, so six years in, what are you at peace with now that you weren't at peace with when you started? Mm. Oh, boy. Um, I guess... I'm I'm not entirely at peace with this, but I can see myself going in a more peaceful direction that um, that truly in our weakness, God is strong, that 
I'm a perfectionist and in the beginning one of my biggest anxieties was what if I make a mistake it's going to be really public and um, the possibility that his grace is sufficient is becoming more and more a reality to me that even in the ways that I have made mistakes somehow um, his power has been seen and it's not always in the way I would have preferred it (laughs) but um yeah, I'm, I was just thinking, actually, I, I led a Bible study this morning and I was remembering that early on I felt a lot of pressure to fill the space in the room. And if there was ever a silence, I took that as, oh, they're not enjoying this or I'm not good at this. And um, and just for some reason remembered that and today realized how much silence there was in the room and how much I didn't take it personally. I just trusted it's not my job to fill them. It's my job to direct them towards the one who fills them and um, to trust that that power really is at work and it's just my job to help people um, direct their attention to it. It's not my job to be powerful. You've spoken publicly about your inner world, uh, a world that includes, among other things, depression and anxiety. How have Mm -hmm. you come to embrace those as gifts for leadership? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm always careful to say when I talk about this too, that um, the whole God can be strong in our weakness message can also be misinterpreted that we should never stop to take a break. You know, if, if God can be strong in my weakness, then when I'm depressed, I just need to power through because God can be strong in that. But there are, there are seasons if God can be strong in our weakness, that he can carry the church so that we can step out for a while. And so depression, especially is the kind of thing that sometimes you just need a break. At the same time, there are many seasons where I have to discern, okay, is this bad enough that I need to step back or I just need to trust that God is strong? And um, I think that, yeah, depression and anxiety are kind of two sides of the same coin often. And so anxiety is always an issue that is that I'm tempted towards. Um, I think that that learning to recognize it, as I mentioned at the beginning, learning to recognize it as an invitation to just say to the Lord, I need you. And it suddenly it becomes, um, you know, instead of something that drives me away from God to just go and stew on my own anxiety, I can turn to him and say, I need you. And suddenly it's an opportunity to grow in my relationship with him. So it does have that interesting kind of hidden potential. Um, depression, um, often for me comes from overwork and um, taking more responsibility on myself than I should. And so oftentimes depression I see as an invitation into rest, which doesn't always mean stepping away entirely from work, but um, it's a kind of a strange metaphor, but I've come to see it almost in the same way as any female mammal, any female creature, um, when they're sick or something or there's a drought or something and they're just not, it's just not a good time to reproduce, the, the female's body just stops having a cycle. It's just there's not a time to be flourishing or to be um, reproducing right now. It's a time to just attend to your own needs. And I think that um, depression can be like that as well, that um, it's not a time to be productive. It's not a time to be anxious and give yourself a hard time and shame yourself for, for being tired or needing rest. And so to so I've learned to trust that I don't want to wallow in the depression, but I also 
um, and trusting that God has set something in our hearts that just certain functions shut down and emotional functions even shut down in order to attend to, you know, your heart is just tired, just like your brain is gets tired. If you've been doing math problems all day long, you wouldn't be surprised if your brain is tired of doing math problems and you'd go and watch Netflix for a bit or something. Our heart gets tired as well of carrying things. And, um, but sometimes when we notice that we're depressed, we put more pressure on our heart to be like, figure out why you're depressed, you know, <laughs> stop being so depressed. And so we add this extra anxiety, which is not the energy that we need at the time. We need to just, so I've tried to set aside the, um, there's, there's the reality of what you're actually dealing with right now. And then there's this part of you that's kind of separate from that and watching that and saying, you shouldn't be feeling this right now, or I'm, I'm anxious that I'm, how long is this going to take? I've got things I'm, I need to do and people relying on me. And I've tried to just kind of shut that voice up and just be in the reality of what is and trust that God has put process, processes in place that if we just rest and and let that process unfold, it brings me through every time. And the times that I get anxious about my depression or shame myself for my depression or just like want to rush it, it actually sh- cuts off that natural process that God has put in place. And um, interestingly, um, I remember being in my kitchen one morning when I was depressed. And usually for me, I'll say this and then I'll finish this answer. It's a long answer. Usually for me, depression feels like I'm the critic of the movie of my life instead of just an actor in the movie. I'm kind of hovering above it and and analyzing everything. And I've heard a lot of people say something similar to that, where you're, you're not just in your daily life, you're thinking about your life constantly. And one morning, it was early in the morning, and I was waiting to say goodbye to my kids. And I was standing in the kitchen with their lunchboxes in my hands. And, the, you know, they were still putting on their shoes or whatever. And I just picked up a book I was reading for book club and it was this interesting journal kind of format. And it said, I'm sitting in a cafe and there's a purple flower on the table next to me. And I just got my hair cut and I think it's a bit too short. What's happening right now in your, in your life. And um, I just almost felt this noise of me kind of coming back down into my own skin, like, you know, and uh, I was like, I'm standing in the kitchen in my pajamas and I'm really thankful actually that I have food to offer my children to send them off to school. And actually I kind of need to go to the bathroom. So I went and did that. And it was just a moment of, a t- of like being really present. And so I found it's very humbling and it goes against everything you, you want to do in depression, which is like, if I just think my way, I'm just going to think my way through this which just adds to this like over anxiety, overthinking everything. Instead, I'll choose to um, just really taste the food when I'm eating it, really like feel the shower when I'm having it, really like feel the blankets when I'm going to bed and um, to just be present in my body and let my senses be alive. Um, somehow it doesn't, it comes around like the back way. And, and after a couple of weeks of that, I find myself just being grateful again. And I don't force gratefulness. I just, for, I just choose attentiveness to my senses. Somehow it just helps me be okay with being a human being again. I think way more leaders than people realize 
struggle with anxiety and or depression, or certainly have an inner life that they really struggle to figure out how to share appropriately. And, uh, you know, you wrote The Vulnerable Pastor. It's an incredible book that really, if, if, if I understand what you were saying in that book, Mandy, you're basically inviting a pastor to be fully aware of just how human you are and how sharing that humanity is a gift in leadership, not, it's not an obstacle. Um, I don't know what the question is in there, but what's your reaction to that? I love that you say that because um, I think when they chose to use the word vulnerable in the title, people assume that I'm talking about it the way that Brene Brown does. And there is definitely overlap and I love what she does. Um, Vulnerability, I think what I think about it is exactly what you said, that it's about just the ordinary experience of being a limited human being. And um, in a way, I think I come at that as an artist does, that artists are always thinking about the human condition or as a philosopher does. Um, you know, Kierkegaard is often wrestling with this reality. And so, um, and the Bible is too, like, is it okay for us to not always understand or not know how to fix um, all the problems in life or for our hearts to just be broken sometimes? And um, if we believe what the world tells us, which is that that's a problem for us to feel that humanness, then we're not really going to bring our whole selves to this work or to the Lord. And we're going to miss so many opportunities because it's other limited human beings that we're supposed to be ministering with and to. So I love that you describe it in that way. And one of the most vulnerable things about it is that there's not an easy formula. Sometimes when I go to speak about this and they say, but you know, if you really let yourself be seen, what if people don't get it? Or what if it backfires or what if they use that against you and there definitely are ways to be thoughtful Jesus there's a wonderful passage that says Jesus did not entrust himself to them for he knew what was in the heart of men and so there is biblical precedent for being wise and cautious and and I've learned that the hard way I used to think Jesus was just let everybody know all your secrets all the time and that's not going to be good for them or for you um and so I am always discerning what is my reason for for holding back or what is my reason for sharing? And in which case, in both cases, how can I serve other people in how I choose whether to hold back or whether to share? And that's both, that's in um, speaking, but also just in letting people see you in certain stages of life. You know, if if a congregant comes and knocks on your door when you've just had an argument with your spouse, you you're put in a tricky situation right there. And will you let them actually see that that in some way, as much as it's appropriate, because you also have your spouse's interest to think about. I'm naturally a very emotional person. I mean, we're all very emotional people and I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that because, you know, anxiety and anger are no less anxious than, are no less emotional than tears. Yeah, I would say that, that I think what you are is you are very in touch with your emotions and very comfortable feeling them. I'm also kind of just knocked off my feet by them sometimes. Mm, and okay. <clears throat> um, a lot of emotions look like tears for me. So anger often will come out in tears. Frustration comes out as tears. And people often assume I've just got my feelings hurt all the time, but it's a lot of different things come out that way. And so um, that is one of the hardest things in my life because I also know all of the stereotypes about women being emotional and 
um, I, if given a choice, I would just um, set that aside. And I sometimes feel, I sometimes feel myself making a choice um, because I could be a really distant person. And there was the time, one of the things I did in high school when I felt this vulnerability of my own sensitivity was to just kind of be an ice queen. And um, I remember even as a child, this interesting moment that I was aware of even as a kid. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why I did that. One day my um, cat, my cat would always bring birds that it would catch. And it brought a bird on our front porch and I nursed the bird all day, tried to make it safe and take care of it. And I just like put so much of my heart into that bird and it dropped dead at the end of the day. And about a week later, later, my cat brought another bird up on the porch and I just walked straight past. And, um, and so I feel myself like discerning often there's a plenty of broken birds that come on our porch as pastors and sometimes we have the option to just walk straight past and uh, I could probably be a fairly effective efficient pastor I get a lot of stuff done Um, I don't know if it would be a very transformative way of leading because I wouldn't actually let myself be seen I would just be telling them information and that can work, but there would be a certain level at which my heart and my engagement with God would not be exposed to them and they, I wouldn't be inviting them into something. Um, and so I'm always wrestling with the Lord because I feel him always pressing me to say what is on my heart and what he's doing in my life. I'm not over the discomfort. I'm getting used to the discomfort. I think we'll always be uncomfortable with our own weakness or limitation, but there's this kind of crazy like freedom and even like humor that comes for me where I'm like, this is so ridiculous what I feel called to do. I know it's so far beyond me. It's as ridiculous as getting a little boy to slay a giant, you know, like God lets the smallness of David be seen so that his power is obvious. So that there's this miraculous moment where you're like, well, obviously something else is at work here because that person couldn't have done that, you know. And so we have to let that be seen, but but in a way that is um, just trusting that God is the one who's working here. And when we do that, it doesn't become like a pity party or whatever. But also <clears throat> similarly with um, doubting God, one of the biggest stretches for me has been being called feeling a call to um, pray for healing for people, which is not something that I grew up doing. It's not common in my tradition. And really learning a lot from Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, where he says, Father, all things are possible, which is a beautiful way to start any prayer. And then he says, take this cup from me. Like, I want this. Is it okay for me? It's one of the hardest things for us to do in prayer, to actually come out and say what we actually want. It's actually, I would we'll be... say, one of the hardest things to do in life. <clears throat> yes. Just to name, here's what I want. Yes, because we're worried we'll be disappointed and if we get our hopes up. I mean, it was like me with the bird. You know, I wanted the bird to live and the bird didn't live and I was disappointed. And so I'm, I stopped looking for birds to save in the future. Um, <clears throat> but then Jesus says, but not my will, but yours be done. And that is like the perfect prayer. Everything is possible with you. It's, and he says, Father, everything is possible. So there's relationship and there is power. And, and within that, we have a space to say, and here's what I would really like. As your child, I'm coming to you to share with you what I'd really like. 
And on the other hand, I give up my power and I hand over everything to you, trusting you are good. And so from that, I started summarizing that by saying, I don't know what God will do, but I know what God can do. And that's a great phrase as a pastor to be able to say, because stepping into this prayer kind of um, practice that, or this uh, healing prayer that we have, that we do a, a couple of times a year now, we have a healing prayer service, which terrified me in the beginning, because I thought, what if I step up as a pastor and tell my people to hope for something that doesn't happen and they're disappointed and God doesn't look great? And so it was really helpful for me to be able to say, we can tell the Lord what we want and at the same time release it. And and to say, we know what God can do, but we don't know what he will do, is is just really healthy scriptural language, I think, to both acknowledge that anything's possible and at the same time that we don't understand how God works. And so that helps us kind of live in that in-between space that kind of includes doubt but also kind of includes wonder. I think anxiety always starts in the body or at least... If we can learn to notice it in our body, we can intervene quicker. So I ask every guest, does anxiety for you start in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? Where would it begin for oh, you? That's, that's an Enneagram question, I think. Could, could be, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I've always felt it in my stomach, yeah. Butterflies and... Um, uh, like sometimes I've, I almost imagine they're like concrete butterflies. <laughs> they're like not just little flitting pretty butterflies, you know. It's like um, I'm out on the edge of a branch, on the edge of a cliff, and God is saying, scoot out a little further there, Mandy, you know, like that kind of thing. And actually at times when I've been in those kinds of intense periods in ministry, one time we went on vacation and we went, we went hiking um, to the top of a cliff that we went to every single summer. And this one summer, I was down on all fours. I could not even walk to the edge of the cliff because that stomach, that feeling in my stomach, it was only then that I realized I've already had the edge of a cliff feeling for the last year. <laughs> you know, So uh, that's the answer to your question, I guess. Uh, I also think one of the sources of anxiety is when we think we need something in any given moment that we don't actually need. Um. In leadership context, what is something that you think you need in any given moment that you actually don't need? Um, <clears throat> I think it's for people to understand me entirely as a person, not just my words, but to understand me. And I think because I'm not from this country, I'm working really hard always to use American words for everything and, and meet them where they are. But there, there needs to be a way in which they also are invited to meet me where, where I am and we can meet halfway kind of thing. Um, but also because I think it helped me when I when I read about the um, INFJ business with um, Myers-Briggs because it said 2% of the population are INFJs, and that actually felt really good for me to read that because that explains why I always feel like people don't really get me and people miscategorize. Like I said earlier, if I'm in tears, it doesn't mean I've got my feelings hurt. Something else is going on. And so then I feel like it's my job to explain myself to people all the time. And, um, you know, there's a way in which that's a service to them, but sometimes it's too much. 
And I have to trust that somehow God made us all different people. And somehow there's a way for us to figure one another out and find God in that, even even if people don't fully understand me. Well, especially um, if you need to be understood and someone doesn't understand you, so you use more words and then they still don't understand you, that just makes you more anxious. It becomes an invitation, like walk with me and you'll come to understand me um, over time. But uh, that takes, not everybody wants to do that or has the time to do that. Well, and I think as a leader, you put yourself in a double bind if you always need to be understood and also are a public person. Mm. Can't have it both, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it puts me in a place where I spend a lot of time rehearsing conversations beforehand or counting my words very carefully. And, you know, we have to be responsible to that, but it can be a bit too much. Like an obsession, yeah. Yeah, to be to be thinking about all my words beforehand. It really helps me be a better writer because <laughs> because I'm like editing my words constantly. But it can in times of anxiety that can kind of become too much. Hmm. Third question that's always a good time for everybody. Uh, tell us about a recent mistake you made and how you recovered from it. I actually, actually, it's good for me to realize I don't think about my mistakes very often. I think about my um, inadequacies a lot, but I guess I don't look back on my mistakes. I'm usually thinking forward to how I feel inadequate, but I don't often look back on mistakes. And maybe that's a part of the artist in me that is always thinking a mistake is an opportunity. So not that I think I do nothing wrong, but I guess with grace, um, I have to say, well, I guess God can work with that even if I didn't do the right thing. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's that because I'm a perfectionist, one of my big mistakes has been assuming I can't make mistakes and um, and and overstressing when I do make mistakes and over fixing and and trying to like wrap up all the loose ends of every possible mistake I have ever made, which just is too much, you know? Mm. And uh, so maybe that's the answer is like one of the mistakes I've made is not having grace for myself in mistakes and, um, and learning to do what I can to mop up the mess, of course, and apologize where's necessary. And at the same time, trust that, all of the things I feel that need to be done to make things right after my mistake aren't necessarily allowing for God's grace. All right, next one. Um, The theory is that anxiety is always contagious in a group. Typically, the most anxious person in a room has the most power unless the leader is aware of it and knows how to lead in a non-anxious way. Where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, everywhere. Oh, I was in a situation recently where a pretty intense thing suddenly got presented to the group and the most anxious person did speak and it became problem solving very quickly. And um, it also could have been an opportunity for us to stop and say, there's, there's something sacred about this. Let's, let's pray. Let's, ask some more questions and explore this together. And um, instead it became a couple of hours of kind of problem solving. And uh, it's only sometimes in hindsight that you notice that, but absolutely that, that did take the 
the power in the group. And sometimes when you stop to say things like, let's pay attention and let's pray, that doesn't feel very powerful, but I believe it is. I think especially when the people that are going into problem solving are unaware that problem solving is often an anxious response. They actually think they're de-escalating anxiety by addressing a problem and they're unaware that that very well-meaning attempt is actually escalating anxiety. Yes. <clears throat> yes. I was just listening to James Finley today who does an amazing recording. Um, you can buy it as an audio book um, called the Thomas Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere. <clears throat> and he was, um, you're nodding your head, so I assume you're familiar with him. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And the recording is amazing because his voice is really soothing. And I sometimes fall asleep to it, <clears throat> sometimes on purpose, sometimes not so much. But he um, was actually at Gethsemane Abbey with Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was his spiritual director, which I just, that's going to be on my list of things to ask for when I get to heaven. So <clears throat> um, right after lunch with C.S. Lewis. Or maybe tea with C.S. Lewis would be more fitting. Or a cigar. Yes, although that doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, he can have the cigar. I don't yeah. need the cigar. Yeah. So anyway, back to the question. Thomas Merton, oh, yes, um, he he's reads a passage from um, Merton where Merton is in a um, chapel at the Abbey and there's a bunch of flowers and he starts by just describing the flowers and then you can see him just kind of get lost in in reality. And it's not a transcendent moment in this like amazing thing happened. He was just suddenly totally present to the reality that is at work in us all the time. And it's incredibly powerful. That's the kingdom of God. You know, it's what Wendell Berry talks about as, as an economy language. And it's what um, Walter Brueggemann talks about when he compares empire and kingdom. And, um, and Thomas Merton term, talks about it in terms of uppercase reality, uppercase R reality. The the recording that James Finley then adds to this quote about from Thomas Merton, Finley then goes on to talk about um, non-activity or inactivity versus activity. And it's not passivity, but uh, a way of choosing to set aside our own agendas in order to attend to the power that is already surging in us and around us all the time, the spirit of God, the kingdom of God. And if we truly, this is what, this is where the real test is for me. Do I really believe that the spirit of the God who spoke creation into existence is existing in our beings? And does he care about this more than we do? And if that's the case, paying attention to one another and to him is actually going to walk us through this problem um, in a more profound and meaningful way and even probably a more so-called efficient way, a more fruitful way is a better word, than us just attending to it ourselves. <clears throat> and so um, out of my exploring that contemplative way, I've come to this use language of rest, receive, respond um, because the world tells you respond 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 fix it understand it control it if there's a problem it's on you and that is not a way of trusting that there is a spirit at work that is beyond our power or understanding and instead we of all people should be the most comfortable with mess and mystery it's basically what we deal with all day every day 
you know, with human beings and with God, it's all mess and mystery. And so we absolutely have a part to play and we absolutely should have a response. It's not about passivity, but I watch us flipping constantly between it's all up to me and it's all up to God. And what is better and more scriptural is God inviting us into partnership And so I think the best way for us to step into that partnership is to first rest. It's the yoke of Jesus that we set aside the world's yoke, which says respond, respond, respond. First we rest from that yoke and then we're able to receive from whatever the spirit has for us when we put aside our own agenda. And from that we respond. And so there is a way to that we have things to do and things to say and actions to take. But the order is really important. If we start with our own response, I've, I don't think I've seen many people who start with their own response and it's already engaging with God. So to stop and rest first feels like a waste of time according to the world's way, according to empire. But according to kingdom ways, that's where we really tap into the true power, where we have new insight and new wisdom and new courage and new direction. And honestly, every time that I've engaged in that way individually with God or in a group with God, it has taken us to places that are so much bigger than we ever could have imagined before. And it's not just, it's suddenly we're not just solving the problem that we thought we had. We've come to see the the whole situation in a new way and there are more opportunities and more creativity than we've ever known before. And so, yeah, (laughs) I want more of that. Yeah, one of the one of the theories is that you, you've just been talking about this. Um, you can't be attentive to your own anxiety and to the presence of God at the same time. Like you, our anxiety is one of the chief competitors to to awareness of God. So the next two questions are really designed to help our listeners um, actively tap into awareness of God's not just presence but God's unconditional love. So, Mandy, when do you feel most fully loved? I guess it's when I'm able to set aside the things that I, you know, when I'm able to see as God sees. We all have our own ideas of who we are, and they're easy to believe based on how people have treated us. And we all have our ideas of how God sees us based on some kind of warped theology or weird way that our emotions actually come into our theology. But one of my most common prayers is to just say to the Lord, help me see as you see, help me see others as you see and help me see myself as you see. And in those moments, um, that's when I'm able to choose to see the way that he sees me, which is a place of love. What activities and places make you feel most fully alive? I would have to say the beach, and you've probably been on some of the beaches that I'm thinking of. An Australian beach, there's nothing like it, really. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. Yeah, and it's partly because um, things are just endless on the beach. The the sky and the water just go off into no, nothingness, and things. it just seems like anything's possible because the space is unlimited, <clears throat> and so it feels like your imagination can be unlimited. And so I just love spaces. I I try to remind myself that I live in the inner city in Cincinnati, but I love the beach and I'm a long way from any beach and I, and it's not a very pretty neighborhood that I live in, but um, the sky is nature that is around us all the time, no matter where we are. 
And it's like 50% of our experience really from this horizon up and all the way around is sky that is nature. And even if we can't be in at a beach or in a forest, um, it's constantly changing. It's never the same every day. It's different. As, so, a, as a beach bum, do you need to be in the water or just close to the water is okay? Just either is good. Yeah, I just need to be at the beach. Um, and so I've tried to remember that that same feeling that I have on the beach is still accessible to me when I'm just under the sky. Mm-hmm. The best time is when it's the blue sky because then you can imagine that the color of that blue is not a big blue sheet of paper wrapped over the world, but you're looking at the deepest blue of outer space that's shielded by our our atmosphere. And um, so sometimes I just look at the sky and say, be that big in my life, in my heart, in my family, in my ministry, be that big and beautiful. Um, when it's cloudy, I try to just remember that's protective. And <laughs> even though it's not a blue sky, clouds are protection. So Yeah, which in Cincinnati you get lots of opportunity to yes, celebrate that. So I've had to remember that a lot. Yeah, <clears throat> good for you. The other thing that I think a beach does is that just um, I had so many hours as a child playing on the beach and there's so many different ways you can play on the beach. You know, drawing in the sand, building with the sand, splashing in the water, finding things in rock pools. And it's just this explorative kind of space where you just are attentive and um, finding things. Yes. Finding things on the beach. And the most beautiful thing is that um, the contemplative experience, which has helped me set aside my anxieties is not this, you know, highly religious thing that is only for the most spiritual or the most old and mature but i think children are deep contemplatives if if contemplation isn't like i'm going to read this book and think about it until i understand it contemplation is being attentive to the goodness that's always all around us all the time and that means attentive to our own senses attentive to our own emotions attentive to our bodies attentive to one another and to creation um somehow on the beach that's that feels easy to do there's not a lot of other stuff going on. You're away from Facebook and traffic and all the other stuff and you can just be attentive. And the funny thing that I've found in that kind of childlike attentiveness is that in the beginning, I imagine God was like, off you go, you go play, I'll run the world for you. And then when you go and play in the world, you find the Lord at work. No, you find the world, the Lord at play in his own creation. For more, go to managingleadershipanxiety.com. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.